Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, a piece of music composed in 1912 by Marion Bauer evokes a trip by violinist Maud Powell up the Ocklawaha River. Because it was mysterious and evocative, that's one reason why Marion Bauer was drawn to it as a musician and as a composer. We'll discuss slavery in Spanish Florida. Under Spanish law, the enslaved had rights that they did not have under other systems of slavery. And we'll talk about rare Galicino horses in North Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, tourists to Florida would travel on steamboats between Palatka and Silver Springs along the Ocklawaha River. They would encounter exotic flora and fauna, including Spanish moss, cypress trees, and unique birds. During the overnight portion of the voyage, torches on the steamboats would cast a mysterious glow, and alligators on the riverbank would be eagerly shot at by northern tourists. In 1912, violinist Maud Powell made this trip and inspired composer Marion Bauer to write the music we're listening to, Up the Ocklawaha. It's performed here by violinist Rachel Barton Pine with pianist Matthew Hagel. Violinist Maud Powell was deeply affected by her trip up the Ocklawaha. Attorney and historian Barbara Wingo. Thanks to the extensive research of Karen Schaefer, we know a lot about Maud Powell, who was the basically the first female violinist virtuoso in the United States from an early age. She performed, she lived from 1867 to 1920 trained in Europe, premiered many of the famous violin concertos that we think of now. Her family was from uh, Illinois. 
Her uncle was actually John Wesley Powell, who is rather famous as one of the founders of the National Geographic Society, but she trained in Europe. She came back and became a leading violinist who I think had a great effect on violin playing in this country. Uh, one of the things that is notable about her is she's the first instrumentalist on the RCA Red Seal label. Not just the first female, but the first instrumentalist in those early recordings. In the early 20th century, it was a challenge for Maud Powell to be taken seriously as a female virtuoso violinist. It was similarly difficult for her friend Marion Bauer to be accepted as a composer. Marion Bauer was at that time a, a young composer, but she would eventually become a leading musical figure in New York City. She was on the faculty of New York University, among other positions that she held. But at that point, she was beginning her career. She had, again, as most musicians did at that time, studied in Europe and often claimed to be Nadia Boulanger's first pupil and was editing a magazine at that time, a musical magazine, with her sister, Marion Bauer never made the trip up the Oklawaha herself, but Maud Powell's description was so vivid it was inspiration enough for the composer. Historian Barbara Wingo. They were actually neighbors in New York and then had a conversation about this cruise that actually Maud Powell was so impressed with this cruise that she not only talked about it with her friend, who therefore was inspired to write a piece about it, but Maud also wrote a rather lengthy poem about her experience on the river, this nighttime, mysterious, evocative experience. And of course, because it was mysterious and evocative, that's one reason why Marion Bauer was drawn to it as a musician and as a composer. Writer Harriet Beecher Stowe, best known for her novel Uncle Tom's Cabin, was another northern tourist inspired by a trip on a steamboat up the Oklawaha. In an 1873 article that first appeared in the Christian Union, Stowe described the exciting overnight trip on the river, followed by a pleasant day at Silver Springs. Actress Janine Klein reads this excerpt from Up the Oklawaha, A Sail into Fairyland. A party of us got into a little skiff and floated over the transparent depth. Every variety of water plant was growing and waving over the varied surfaces of the bottom, which had its heights and depths, its caverns and grottos. We could see the fish darting hither and thither and mark on the brilliant sands at the bottom various objects which had been thrown in by experimenting travelers. The water was of about the same high temperature with the spring at Green Cave. The shores were clothed with tropical forests all around, and here and there we could see starry flocks of a peculiar and beautiful white lily, which grows abundantly on these waters. From a star-shaped calyx of six narrow white leaves comes out a silver cup. From the edges of this cup rise six stamens with their golden heads. By about ten o'clock we had left the silver spring with its crystal waters behind. Our romance was over and our faces set homeward. Yet, that evening, as we sat on deck going through the narrows of the Oklawaha, we felt that the spell of illusion was not quite broken.
The late 19th and early 20th century steamboat trips up the Ocklawaha between Palatka and Silver Springs inspired not only prose and music, but visual art as well. Barbara Wingo. These images from the 1872 volume of Appleton's Picturesque America, drawn by Harry Finn, became almost the iconic images of Florida, of the interior of Florida. And you can see them being evoked in what Maud Powell said about her trip, what Marion Bauer actually wrote, and also what Marion Bauer did in terms of the cover of the sheet music for this piece. It is the same evocation of the swamp, the river, the darkness, the lights from the boat, the fires from the boat. This is all part of the evocation of this scene that becomes very popular due to the picturesque America photographs, General Grant's trip up the Oklahoma, you mentioned Harriet Beecher Stowe, all of these made this trip famous. Violinist Maud Powell was amazed by the exotic Florida wildlife and mysterious trees that she saw illuminated by her steamboat's torches as she traveled the Oklahoma in 1912. Again, her account of that voyage inspired composer Marion Bauer. So Maud Powell makes this in 1912, comes back and talks to her friend Marion Bauer, who is a composer, who is a fledgling composer. So one of Maud Powell's missions, if you will, and she's famous for this, she was famous for this, was encouraging American composers. She felt like Europeans and European artists came over to this country, and one of her quotes is, they made lots of money from us, but they didn't play American pieces. So one of the things that I think is important about this is Maud Powell is encouraging an American composer to evoke music from a very quintessential American scene, which is the trip up the Okawaha River. So all of this is in some sense all of a piece in 1912 America. Maud Powell made her trip up the Okawaha in early 1912, and by that December, Marion Bauer's instrumental work depicting it premiered in San Francisco. Barbara Wingo says that Powell frequently performed the piece. What Maud Powell did is she had a series of shorter pieces that she would play at her recitals. And recitals then were not short, they were long, had many longer pieces, shorter pieces, but what she felt was necessary was that you intermixed different types of pieces. This was one of the pieces that she would routinely use at her recitals. But it was at that time, remember this is impressionistic. This is their new music for that era. So this would be more advanced and she was always trying to show the best, whether it was new or old, but this would have been a more advanced piece at that time and maybe not as accessible to most of the audience as some of the more popular pieces that she played. Today, Palatka has a nice historic district, but a modern tourist would not necessarily know that this quiet town was a busy transportation hub when Up the Oklawaha was composed. No, they would not, and it certainly was a very busy hub for these tourist steamboats. Now, at this point, the steamboat industry or the steamboats were not really used that much for commercial purposes as the railroad has pretty much superseded that. 
but they still were used for tourists and this was popular until after World War One, in which case it pretty much died out completely. We spoke with attorney and historian Barbara Wingo. Up the Oklawaha was composed in 1912 by Marion Bauer and inspired by violinist Maud Powell. It's performed here by Rachel Barton Pine with pianist Matthew Hagel. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org to find great books on Florida history and culture, find out about upcoming events, listen to archived editions of this program, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, during America's colonial period, slavery under the Spanish in Florida was much different than slavery practiced by the British in colonies to the north. Jane Landers, the Gertrude Conway Professor of History at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, is perhaps the leading authority on slavery in Spanish Florida. The author of five books and numerous essays and journal articles on the subject, her research encourages us to make comparisons between the British and Spanish laws and practices on slavery in the colonial period. Laws governing slavery were centuries old by the time Spain embarked on its exploration of the Americas. Indeed, free blacks and enslaved men and women accompanied the Spanish on their quest, some as laborers and others as navigators, carpenters, and interpreters. They shared the hardships and adventures of mapping what was for them a new world. Enslavement in Spain began in the early medieval period with the conquest of the peninsula and the arrival of Islam and Africans. Enslavement occurred as the result of war, indebtedness, and self-enslavement. Enslavement always involves the loss of individual freedom and the coercion of labor. It is a brutal existence. But under Spanish law, the enslaved had rights that they did not have under other systems of slavery. They could own property and initiate lawsuits. Those who converted to Catholicism were viewed as children of God and were entitled to charity. 
emancipation was possible, and an estimated 10 to 20 percent of people of African heritage were free under Spanish regimes. Free blacks entered trades, although they were denied membership in guilds. They were concentrated in the trades of blacksmithing, carpentry, and tailoring, and some also worked as stonemasons. Many were domestic servants in Spanish households. And as the so-called age of exploration emerged, some free blacks migrated to the Americas and developed new skills, including navigation knowledge, multi-language skills, and military expertise. Free and enslaved blacks were with Juan Ponce de Leon when he first arrived on the Florida Peninsula, and with Pedro Menendez when he founded the city of St. Augustine. Free and enslaved blacks endured the attacks, epidemics of disease, and food insufficiencies that marked Spanish efforts at occupation and settlement. Documentary evidence suggests that blacks had social, religious, and military ties in the white communities. They also had ties with indigenous communities. Enslaved people escaping from Spanish control fled to indigenous communities and intermarried. As a result, blacks often spoke indigenous languages in addition to perhaps several European languages. This ability to move linguistically from one group to another made them sought-after interpreters. Connie, enslaved people and free blacks came to Florida first in the American colonies. How was slavery different under the British? In 1663, Charles II, the British Restoration monarch, granted land in what is now South Carolina to eight proprietors who had supported his cause during his exile. The first settlers arrived in 1670 from Barbados and brought enslaved people with them. According to historian Peter Wood, South Carolina is unique in being the colony of a colony and in its settlement by enslaved people. The proprietors were sugar planters from Barbados and intended to establish cattle in South Carolina to feed the island. South Carolina was what historian Ira Berlin defined as a slave society, that is, a society whose economy was defined by slavery. Slavery in the British colonies was chattel slavery, which viewed enslavement as permanent and inheritable. Slaves could be bought, sold, mortgaged, rented out, and willed to heirs. Slaveholders exercised absolute control over their slaves and restricted freedom of movement, denied access to education, prevented legal marriages between couples, and denied parents control over their own children. Conversion to Christianity did not change their relationship to the slave system. Charlestown, the principal city, was located only 10 days from St. Augustine, and enslaved people in South Carolina viewed Spanish Florida as an escape haven. In 1693, King Charles II of Spain proclaimed that enslaved men who escaped from British plantations and made their way to Florida would, upon conversion to Catholicism and four years of militia service, be declared free. In 1738, the Spanish governor of Florida established a settlement of free blacks north of St. Augustine that became known as Fort Mose. The militia leader was a Mandinga born in the Gambia region of Africa 
and baptized as Francisco Menendez. Fort Mose has been identified as the first legal black community in North America and was designated as a National Historic Site in 1996. The 1731 establishment of the colony of Georgia failed to act as a sufficient barrier between the enslaved people seeking freedom and Spanish Florida offering it. Relations between the two European powers were never good, and in 1742, British soldiers under the command of James Oglethorpe launched an attack on Spanish Florida in a larger conflict that became known as the War of Jenkins' Ear. A force consisting of Spanish troops, Indian allies, and free black militiamen counterattacked and drove out the British, destroying Fort Mose in the process. The British gained control over Florida under the 1863 Treaty of Paris that ended the French and Indian War and retained control until 1783, when another Treaty of Paris ended the American Revolution and returned Florida to Spain. For the next 36 years, Spanish Florida continued to serve as a haven for enslaved people, escaping from plantations in Alabama, Georgia, and South Carolina. When the United States negotiated the Adams-Ones Treaty in 1819 that ceded Florida to the American control, the harsher chattel slavery prevailed, and although escaping enslaved people continued to flee to the forests and swamps of Florida, they lost the protection they had once enjoyed under Spanish control. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers, the Galicino horses brought to Florida by the Spanish and later called cracker horses are now very rare. Holly Baker has more. Dr. Richard Blaney is a retired college professor of biological sciences with a bachelor's degree from Florida State University in biological sciences and a doctorate from Louisiana State University in zoology. He recently talked with me about the Galicinos of Swanee Horse Ranch near Live Oak, Florida. As Dr. Blaney explains, Galicinos have been in North America since the Spanish conquistadors brought them to the continent in the early 16th century. The Galicino horses are Spanish horses. Their claim to fame here are the fact that they are the uh, first horses who have come into the New World with Columbus and Cortez and De Soto. Cortez brought them to Mexico in 1519 and uh, responsible for the Aztecs in Mexico and then uh, colonization of Mexico. They're also originally brought into Cuba and Hispaniola and from Cuba went to Mexico and then from Cuba came to Florida. These are the first horses that were used by the Spanish explorers in Florida and eventually became the horses that the settlers used and after centuries became the Florida cracker horses. We're really talking about a horse that has a long history. 
Galicinos are called the small horse with a big heart, not only because they're extremely friendly and giving horses, but they physically have a large heart for their size. Strong, agile, and intelligent, Galicinos are pony-sized horses that stand between 48 to 54 inches tall. DNA evidence from the Texas A&M Genetics Lab indicates that Galicino horses are closely related to the Iberian Garano, making them the earliest Spanish colonial horse in the Americas. In recent years, the number of Galicinos have declined so dramatically that the Livestock Conservancy has classified them as critically endangered. The unfortunate thing is they're extremely rare now. There's less than 200 of them left in the world. We have 41 of them on our ranch. We have established about 16 of them on other ranches around the country. And our program is to save the breed. There's an awful lot of history involved. That's the long and short of it. Our focus is to save the breed and provide others with horses that they can also breed and try to keep the breed going. The people with the Galicinos of Swanee Ranch are Dr. Richard Blaney, his wife Pat Blaney, Heidi Reinhardt, the granddaughter of Native American horse trainer John LeBrett from the Spokane tribe, and advocate Suzanne K. Durham, along with many others who support the ranch in various ways. We have two locations. One is where we keep our stallions. They live together, usually in harmony. And then our main ranch is 66 acres, where we have all the mares and some other horses as well. We've got our babies here that we're working with daily and a whole lot to see. We usually invite people to come and walk among living history. In their mission to promote the breed and to educate, the Calasinos of Suwannee Ranch travels to various fairs, horse shows, and events throughout the United States. The Galicinos of Swanee Ranch welcomes responsible volunteers to spend time with the horses by feeding, brushing, and handling them to keep them familiar with human contact. The gentle Galicino horse is easy to care for and train and has a reputation for being very strong and hardy. Dr. Blaney. We've been functioning as, as Galicinos of Swanee Ranch since um, 2006. By the way, we've had 36 births on the ranch and 100% uh, survival. This is something that we let people know about, but we don't take responsibility for it. It's the nature of the horse. They are very, very hardy, very sturdy, and uh, not sensitive, so they've survived quite well. To learn more about the Galicinos of Suwannee Horse Ranch, go to galicino.org. That's G-A-L-I-C-E-N-O dot org. You can also find them on Facebook. Donations are tax-deductible. The folks at the Galicinos of Suwannee Horse Ranch also request, quote, lots of hay. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can also listen as a podcast. Find us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org and visit us on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Connie Lester and Holly Baker. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.